This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't get anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. What are the keys to sexual and relationship satisfaction? Much has been said and written on this subject, but unfortunately, much of it is wrong. Some of the most popular and pervasive ideas out there about what makes for happy and healthy intimate lives just aren't backed up by the science. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about what the data actually say when it comes to cultivating satisfying sex lives and relationships. Some of the topics we're going to explore include whether having more sex will actually make you happier, whether spontaneous sex is actually better than planned sex, whether high levels of closeness in relationships promote or inhibit desire, and so much more. Dr. Amy Muse is back on the show to talk about the science of intimate satisfaction. She is an assistant professor and York Research Chair at York University. She is director of the Sexual Health and Relationships Lab. Her research focuses on factors that contribute to the maintenance of sexual desire and relationship quality. She has published 121 articles and book chapters and has been awarded over $2.9 million in research funding. This is going to be a fascinating conversation. Stick around and we're going to jump in right after the break. Do you have a sexual fantasy you want to explore but have never tried before? If so, you're not alone. In my own research, I found that 80% of adults have a fantasy they wish to act out, but only about 20% have ever attempted it. Why is that? We often hold our desires back because we're worried about being judged, or we don't know how to find a partner who shares our desires. So, here's a solution. Flur is a sex-positive dating app where you can be anyone, want anything, and regularly try something new. Flur has gathered a community of people ready to openly discuss their fantasies and bring them to life. If you can clearly define your goals and desires, there are partners out there for that. There is no judgment here and women can elevate the conversation's intensity only when they desire. The app has a safe mode to prevent unwanted explicit content or offensive messages. However, that's just a backup option because the app draws users who respect personal boundaries and adhere to the principles of consent. Flirt provides a comfortable and safe space to explore your sexuality and find pleasure. Check the show notes for the link or head over to flirt.com. That's F-L-U-R-E dot com. The Flur dating app is a place where you can be your authentic sexual self and tap into your fantasies and desires. In Flur, pleasure awaits. Are you ready to take your career to the next level and become a certified sexuality professional? The Sexual Health Alliance's certification programs are here to empower you. From sex therapists and sex educators to sex coaches and couples therapists, Shaw's comprehensive and flexible programs streamline your path to certification. Learn from leading experts in the field and complete all of your necessary certification requirements in a self-paced, flexible online format. Most importantly, you'll gain the knowledge, skills, and credentials you need to excel in your field while connecting with an engaged community of professionals from around the world. Take your next step at Sexual Health Alliance. Visit sexualhealthalliance.com or check the show notes for the link. Okay, Amy, let's talk about the science of sexual and relationship satisfaction. I think a good place to start is with sexual frequency, because people are likely to assume that the more often partners are having sex, the happier they're likely to be. 
And this idea is out there in a lot of the sex and relationship advice that couples are often given. So for example, there are some self-help books out there that challenge couples to have sex every single day. There's one I'm thinking of in particular, I can't remember exactly what the title was, but it was like telling couples that they should have sex every single day for a year, which sounds like a lot to me (laughs) because I know that there would be some days where I wouldn't be in the mood because there'd be a lot of other things going on and maybe that might be counterproductive to do. But anyway, when it comes to sex, is more necessarily always better? I know this is something you've studied. So what's the answer there? Yeah, great question. We were interested in this after seeing some of these books as well. And one that comes to mind is a book where it's from the perspective of a woman who gifted daily sex to her husband for a year for his 40th birthday. And in the book, she writes about, you know, some of the challenges with that, but also, you know, her thoughts that it ultimately improved their relationship. But of course, as you mentioned, most couples have busy lives, right? They're working, they're caring for children, they're navigating a household. And, you know, very frequent sex might not be possible or even desired. So my collaborators, and this is Emily Imped and and Uli Shimak from uh, University of Toronto, we drew on nationally representative data from 30,000 people. And we found, in fact, that the association between how often people engage in sex and how happy they are is curvilinear. So what this means is that the benefits of more frequent sex level off or there's not further gains at these higher frequencies. So specifically what we found was that although overall engaging in more frequent sex was linked to higher well-being, this tended to level off at a frequency of about once a week. So couples who had sex more frequently than once a week were just as satisfied as couples who had weekly sex. Now in this line of work, we were also able to compare this association between sexual frequency and well-being and the association between income and well-being. So income is something that's also been shown to have a curvilinear association with well-being in some studies. And what we found here was that this increase in well-being gained from having sex once a week compared to once a month was the same as the increase in well-being gained from making $75,000 a year compared to $25,000 a year. So this $50,000 increase in income. So what I like to think of as the takeaway here is that it is important, you know, on average for most couples to maintain like a regular sexual connection, but this seems to be more around the weekly mark rather than the daily mark. I think those very high frequencies are much more characteristic of like the early stages of relationships and long-term couples, you know, tend to be able to maintain high well-being at, you know, lower levels than that. So to answer your question, engaging in more frequent sex can be good for well-being, but more is not always better. Yeah. So more sex and more money sound great in theory, and they are good to a degree, but there's a certain point where there's just diminishing returns when you have more and more of those things. You know, I can't help but think of the old saying, more money, more problems, right? Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, at some point having so much money does become another kind of issue. I think that's why so many people who win the lottery end up losing all the money that they had, right? Because it becomes too much at some point. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. When this work first came out, um, you know, I was talking about this once a week finding, you know, people had varying reactions to it, but some people felt relieved. You know, they were like, I've been thinking that, you know, I should be having more sex. And this just made me, you know, really feel good about, you know, that just seemed manageable, I guess, to a lot of people. And, you know, so for some people that was kind of, you know, good to know. Yeah, once a week is a much more attainable goal than, say, once a day or multiple times per day. 
So thanks for sharing that. And building on this idea of looking at sexual frequency and sexual satisfaction, there's another study where you also looked at sexual frequency, sexual satisfaction, and relationship satisfaction. And there are lots of predictions that people might make here. For example, you might think that the more sex that people are having, not only are they going to be happier with their sex life, but by extension, they'll be happier with their relationship. But it might also be that if you're in a happy relationship to begin with, that will lead you to have more sex and to be more sexually satisfied. So you can think about these things as going in different causal directions. So when you've looked at these things in the research, what do you find there? Yeah, good question. So the work I just discussed really didn't consider this role of sexual satisfaction. So just even how much people are enjoying like the sex that they're having. And it didn't provide this uh, strong test of like the direction of the effect. So we have a recent paper where we tried to address these questions. And this is a collaborative paper and it's led by Gideon Park, who's a PhD student at the University of Toronto. And so the first key thing we wanted to look at here was whether sexual satisfaction leads to relationship satisfaction or vice versa, right? And then what role does sexual frequency play in all of this? And as you mentioned, like we already know that these things tend to co-occur, like people who are more sexually satisfied, they tend to have more frequent sex and feel happier in their relationship. But past work has been pretty inconsistent about the direction of these associations. So in this study, we had data from 2,000 mixed-gender newlywed couples, and these were couples in the United States. And we found that changes in their sexual satisfaction at one time point predicted changes in their relationship satisfaction. And this was for both partners at the next time point. But then we didn't find evidence for the reverse. So in other words, if either partner felt more satisfied with their sex life than usual, both partners became more satisfied in the relationship in the future. But then feeling more satisfied in the relationship didn't lead to these changes in sexual satisfaction in the future. And largely these things remained when we accounted for how frequently couples had sex. So if we're able to like hold constant how often these couples are having sex, changes in sexual satisfaction did lead to changes in relationship satisfaction in the future. And then when couples were more sexually satisfied, they tended to engage in more sex in the future. In some ways, right, this makes sense. If, you know, the sex you're having is more enjoyable, uh, you might have more of it moving forward. But we didn't see this reverse link. So we didn't see that changes in sexual frequency were linked to either changes in sex or relationship satisfaction. So I think what this work suggests is not just the role of like how often couples are having sex, but how satisfying the sex is. And then that, you know, it is relevant, I think, for a lot of couples to focus on their sexual satisfaction specifically, because it does seem to, you know, maybe spill over or broaden out and have larger effects on just how people feel about their relationship as a whole. Yeah. And everything you said there ties in with so many things that we've talked about on this podcast before, which is how the real key factor in people's intimate lives is pleasure and whether they're enjoying the sex that they're having. So are you having sex that's worth having? And if you are, you're likely to do it more frequently. But if you're not having sex that's meeting your needs or just doesn't really seem worth having, then you're going to do it with less frequency. So it totally makes sense that satisfaction would actually be a predictor or precursor to how often you're going to have sex, because if you're not enjoying it, you're not going to be doing it so much. So I appreciate the work that you're doing here that helps to take some of the clinical insights that have been shared on this show by various sex therapists and really tests it out and shows that, you know, there is something to this idea. And I think we really need to focus a lot more on pleasure here when we're talking about sexual problems in relationships. It's not necessarily 
an issue of, do I have enough desire for sex? It's, am I having good enough sex that makes me want to have it even more? So the results of these studies suggest that the quantity or frequency of sex might not be quite as important as people think. Another common belief about sex that your research challenges is this idea that spontaneous sex is superior to planned sex. And there are a lot of folks out there who think that if you plan sex, that's necessarily going to take the fun out of it, and that the best sex is the kind that happens at the spur of the moment where there's some spontaneity or element of surprise. Now, I know you recently published a study looking at this. So what did you find? Is spontaneous sex actually better than planned sex? Yeah, I mean, in contrast to what people think, no, right? So there is this belief, as you're mentioning, and we see this perpetuated in the media a lot, that sex that happens spontaneously, you know, without any forethought or planning is more enjoyable than this planned sex or sex that's scheduled ahead of time. So this work is led by one of my PhD students, Katarina Kokosevic, and we wanted to test whether there's any truth to this. Like, first, we just wanted to see if people did actually, on average, hold this belief. Do they actually see spontaneous sex as more satisfying? And then is it actually more satisfying, right? So we did start by asking people about their beliefs. And this was a big effect. Overwhelmingly, people did see spontaneous sex as more satisfying than planned sex. But what was really interesting is that when we followed people for several weeks, and in one of the studies, we surveyed them daily. And when they engaged in sex with their partner, we asked them to the extent uh, to which the sex was, you know, happened spontaneously or was planned ahead of time. And here we saw no difference in how satisfying people rated the sexual encounter based on whether it was planned or whether it happened spontaneously. Both of these experiences were equally satisfying. So it seems as though people strongly believe that sexual, that spontaneous sex is more satisfying than planned sex, but we don't find evidence that this is actually true. And so far, this work has really been in samples with like fairly satisfied couples without sort of high rates of sexual challenges, I would say. And although in these samples, like we see no difference between spontaneous or planned sex, we actually think there might be samples for whom planning sex is important for satisfaction. So for example, couples, you know, in which one partner might have lower desire, planning sex could allow time to like build anticipation, prepare for sex, um, or for couples who might have some health or mobility issues, planning sex could allow people to like have the appropriate setup, you know, to have access to sex toys or other sexual supports that might help with their pleasure. So as we continue this work, we're aiming to target samples in which sexual spontaneity might be challenging because we think that that's where these beliefs could actually be harmful, right? If you really value spontaneous sex, but you have these limits to engaging in it, then that might be where these could be harmful. And that might be a sample in which to test whether like challenging those beliefs and offering the belief that planned sex can have all these benefits might actually lead to more sexual satisfaction. Yeah. So spontaneous sex in theory sounds great to a lot of people, right? And there's this idea, I think this fantasy that if sex kind of happens out of the blue where your partner surprises you, that it's going to be more passionate and intense and exciting. And, you know, when I look at my research on sexual fantasies, I see a lot of that coming out in these sorts of themes that people are saying, it's what they want. It's what they idealize. It sounds good in theory, but in practice, it's different. Because, for example, let's say you're making 
dinner and it was the end of a busy day and your mind is scattered a lot of places and your partner wants to surprise you with like sex in the kitchen while you're in the middle of making dinner. You know, maybe that's not the right time, right? Your partner made an effort, they initiated it, but there was a mismatch there, right? So I'm curious if you have any other thoughts on this in terms of why spontaneous sex might not in practice be as good as we think it's going to be in our fantasies. Yeah, we did actually ask people some open-ended questions so they could sort of tell us like their thoughts in general, um, using their own words about spontaneous and planned sex. And some people mentioned the things about spontaneous sex that you're saying, right? That, you know, it can seem more passionate, it can feel like your partner really has high desire for you. But other people talked about things with planned sex that, you know, they appreciated that because like it allowed them time to prepare. And this could be like, you know, in terms of what people were wearing in terms of like their bodily grooming, you know, that they like to be a certain way when they're engaging in sex, you know, or that it allowed them to like have the kind of setup or, you know, toys or lubricant or other things that they might need to make the experience pleasurable, you know, and then we had other people that, you know, just kind of told us like, it doesn't matter, you know, like I just, these are people in relationships. So they were just like, However it happens, like I just enjoy, you know, having sex and connecting with my partner in that way. I think sometimes the planning inside, it seems here in our samples that it's like a little bit underrated or undervalued, you know, but I think for some people, there were aspects of it that were actually very important for their sexual pleasure. Yeah. You know, as you were talking about that, I couldn't help but think about this in the context of the dual control model of sexual response. It's what Emily Nagoski talks about in terms of there being the gas pedal and the brake, the excitatory and inhibitory systems in the brain. And for people who have a more, let's say, active excitatory system, I think spontaneous sex might better meet their needs or just might be easier for them to have because they can just like get aroused instantaneously. But for partners where there's a mismatch, where one has highly excitatory, the other is highly inhibitory, or in cases where both partners are higher on inhibition, you know, spontaneous sex is going to be harder to happen, to make it work, to meet everybody's needs. So just something I was thinking about that might be an interesting avenue worth exploring in future research in this area is the individual differences that might make people receptive to offers of spontaneous sex. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think there will be differences with people and I think there'll be differences, you know, just in terms of like life circumstances, right? For some people who just maybe live with their partner, who have their own place and their partner comes over, you know, they might kind of have more freedom to engage in spontaneous sex. The other thing that came up was, you know, couples who have children, like privacy was a concern, right? So, you know, they didn't always feel comfortable unless they knew that, you know, their kids were sleeping or they were in a locked room or something like that so that they, you know, felt more free to engage in sex. The other thing that we thought here that we didn't find a lot of evidence for was, you know, maybe people who believe that spontaneous or planned sex is really beneficial are like they're going to benefit from what they believe is the most beneficial. And with one exception, which was that we tended to find in one of our studies, we found that some people did rate planned sex as less satisfying. But if people held this belief that planned sex was a satisfying endeavor that they were buffered against that. So we felt, but we didn't, even for the people who said they really believe spontaneous sex is better when they engaged in spontaneous sex, they didn't feel any more satisfied than when they engaged in planned sex. 
Um, but I do think that you're right about the, you know, for some people, I do think it might be more important for them to feel that intense desire from a partner. Whereas other people, you know, they might feel more comfortable during sex when they have sort of the setup and everything that they, that they kind of feel most comfortable with. Yeah. I also can't help but wonder how the amount of time that you spend on sex or how quickly you reach orgasm might factor into this as well, right? Because if you and your partner can both reach orgasm pretty quickly and, you know, you can interrupt the moment to have a quickie, like that might work for some people. But for folks who take longer to reach orgasm or just like to spend a lot longer on sex, you know, planning it might make it better in that case. So yeah, there's so many interesting things that could be explored here. And I appreciate that you're doing further work in this area. Yeah, definitely. Now, I wanted to ask about another recent paper you published, which looked at how closeness between partners is linked to sexual desire. A lot of people would probably assume that greater closeness and intimacy would necessarily be better and would prompt more desire. But I've heard from a lot of sex and relationship therapists, including Esther Perel, who has talked about how too much closeness can potentially stifle desire. So in your review paper on this subject, what did you find? What is the link between closeness and sexual desire? Yeah, it's interesting and it's a, it's a little bit nuanced. I find these ideas really fascinating because I think like you're suggesting, most people, especially those who've been in a long-term relationship, you know, they might have experienced this trajectory in which you know, they had pretty intense desire and passion early on. And then, they, you know, they found that this, this faded or declined over time. And then this sort of corresponded with like the increasing closeness, right? So as you got more close and comfortable with your partner, you know, maybe they became more familiar and that was in some ways linked to passion waning. So what we did here was we wanted to review the evidence for this link between closeness and sexual desire. And really in all of the ways that it's been looked at, closeness is positively linked to desire. So in relationship science, we've conceptualized closeness in a number of ways. So this idea of like seeing overlap or like kind of an interconnection between you and your partner, uh, seeing a partner as really responsive to your needs so that they like really understand you is, is linked to closeness, feeling emotionally supported, doing um, activities with your partner, especially things that are novel and exciting tend to be linked to closeness. So in all of these ways that we tend to study closeness, in the work that we reviewed, it was always associated with higher desire. But my co-author um, on this review paper, so this is a former student, Sophie Goss, we argue in this paper that it's not necessarily that too much closeness squashes desire. So you hear these ideas out there in terms of like, you know, if you're if you reveal too much to a partner, if you have too much overlap. There's going to be no excitement. You know, you're, that's what's going to squash the desire. So we didn't really see evidence of that in the literature. But instead, we think that it might be optimal for this high closeness to be paired with something that we're referring to as otherness or distinctiveness between partners. And this, this idea would be in line with what Esther Perel puts forward. So this idea of otherness is that the distinctiveness between partners can allow people to like see each other in new ways. Uh, we also think that part of it is like this acknowledgement of the unique things that each partner brings to the relationship and that there's like potential to still be surprised and to see a partner in a new light, to experience growth in the relationship. So this idea that high closeness is important for desire, but I think in the optimal way, it's also paired with this otherness. And so we have one empirical test of these ideas because uh, this paper was sort of reviewing what's out there already in the literature. 
what we found is that when couples engage in like a novel, exciting activity together, which we know boosts sexual desire or is associated with the maintenance of desire, higher desire is due to both this increase in closeness from engaging in that activity, but also this increase in otherness. So it is possible to simultaneously feel close and interconnected with a partner, but also see them as distinct and know that there might be new, exciting things that they could bring to the relationship. So we really think that this higher closeness does underpin sexual desire in relationships for most people. And I think often you might need to feel that closeness in order to be able to, you know, acknowledge in a positive way, like a partner's distinctiveness. Uh, But there's also many couples who do have that closeness, but also feel low desire. So we think that it might be important to pair this closeness with sufficient otherness or distinctiveness. And that might be a path to maintaining desire. And so we're beginning to, to test more of these ideas, you know, to see if it's a particular balance. And I suspect that, you know, some of these aspects might be more important to some people than others. Yeah, that makes total sense to me. And I think if you look at the history of sort of how closeness has been measured, it hasn't necessarily been that nuanced in the sense of it's just kind of like either you're really close and overlapping or you're not. And, you know, this idea that there's closeness, but it exists alongside these other dimensions like otherness and autonomy. These are important things to look at side by side. There's likely going to be some interaction between them that you got to have this right level of closeness and this right level of independence and this right level of, you know, still seeing your partner's otherness uh, in order to have, you know, the best sexual and relationship satisfaction. So yeah, there's, there's so many things worth exploring here. And I appreciate again, the work you're doing because it's giving us these more nuanced views of how all these things might work together. Yeah, I mean, this is in line with, you know, a lot of theories in relationship science and, and broader, you know, I'm a social psychologist, like broader social psychology literature that, you know, people really do value like relatedness, connectiveness with others, but they also value like their own personal autonomy and distinctiveness. And I think, you know, we haven't in our research anyways, fully applied these ideas to sexuality. We focus a lot more on the closeness side, which is obviously very important, but we focus less in relationship science on like the role of, you know, your own autonomy and distinctiveness and sort of the, the new and different things that partners might bring to a relationship. Um, so I think thinking about that will give us some new insight into desire maintenance. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's talk about relationship satisfaction for a moment. So in relationships between men and women, there's this idea out there that women are the barometers of relationship satisfaction and basically that women's perceptions carry more weight. And this is exemplified in common sayings like happy wife, happy life. But what's the truth here? What does the research say about this? Are women really the barometers of relationship satisfaction? Well, I mean, what we found, so we do hear a lot of gendered notions about relationships, right? And this is one of them. And this is actually a longstanding idea, as you mentioned, relationship science as well. So we hear colloquially like happy wife, happy life. But in our literature, there's this idea that in mixed gender relationships, women's relational views are consistently thought of as more predictive of how each partner feels than men's. And we were interested in this idea because although we should all like value our partner's happiness, right? This should be important to us. This gendered might inadvertently perpetuate the idea that women are more responsible for making relationship decisions and working on strengthening the relationship, which can create these like 
unequal divisions of emotional labor and mixed gender relationships, these ideas also neglect or at least place less importance on the role of both partner satisfaction, right, including men's satisfaction. So this is work that we did to rigorously test this idea. It's led by Matt Johnson, who's at the University of Alberta. And here we had two large scale studies. So first we combined data from the daily experiences of over 900 couples. So we had daily reports of each partner satisfaction uh, for several weeks. And then second, we had access to annual data over five years from over 3,400 couples. Now, what we found is that for both women and men, their own satisfaction at a previous time point, so whether this was like the previous day or the previous year, was predictive of their satisfaction at the next time point. And not only that, for both men and women, it was predictive of their partner's future relationship satisfaction as well. And there were no gender differences in the strength of this effect. So essentially, our conclusion is that we do not have evidence to support this idea of happy wife, happy life. And instead, a more fitting phrase might be happy spouse, happy house, because it seems like both partners' relationship quality matters for the future of the relationship. Yeah, makes total sense to me. And this is why it's important for us to do studies that check the conventional wisdom or the common sense explanations. You know, there's a lot of things out there that people believe about sexuality and relationships. And it seems to be true. There might be anecdotal evidence they can point to that supports their observation, but we need the data to know whether or not this is actually true. Uh, and sometimes when things seem positive on their face, right? Happy wife, happy life. You know, it seems like, oh, I want to make my woman partner happy and this is going to be good for everyone. You know, we don't realize that sometimes there can be underlying negative consequences of that where it puts sort of like undue burden on one partner. So that's also something, you know, that's sometimes important and challenging, even these sort of positive stereotypes or ideas about relationships, because they could have sort of these inadvertent consequences. Yeah. Now, one other thing I wanted to ask you about is the concept of sexual responsiveness or this idea of being motivated and willing to make sexual compromises. When I was in graduate school, we learned that willingness to sacrifice in relationships is one of the key predictors of satisfaction for all partners involved. So in other words, if you're willing to put your partner's needs ahead of your own, people tend to be happier. However, it turns out that this is another case where more isn't necessarily always better and that we need a nuanced answer. So can you tell us a little bit about when sexual responsiveness has benefits and when it has costs in a relationship? Yeah, that's a great question. So me and my former postdoc mentor and longtime collaborator, Emily Impet, have spent many years looking at this idea of sexual responsiveness in relationships. So we can think of this as like understanding, accommodating, and as you mentioned, sort of being willing to sacrifice or compromise, um, being motivated to meet a partner's sexual needs. So in a lot of the work that Emily and I have done, we've applied some of the exact theories that you're talking about, right? Like communal theories. Um, so this idea that, you know, how willing are you to meet a partner's needs, make sacrifices for a partner? We've applied this to sexuality. And so we find that when people who are higher in sexual communal strength, so they're more sexually responsive, there tends to be benefits. So they consider their partner's um, outcomes more when they're making sexual decisions. They often engage in sex in order to foster like intimacy and connection in a relationship. They do this for autonomous reasons. It's not out of obligation. It's sort of, you know, to promote inherent pleasure and meaning in their relationship with their partner. And we also find that when you're a sexually responsive partner or you see your partner as being sexually responsive to your needs, 
this can help couples maintain satisfaction and buffer against some of the negative consequences of like coping with the sexual issue or challenge. So things like low desire or a transitional period. So when couples like have their first baby and their sex life might change. So people who are responsive to a partner's sexual needs, they tend to navigate these types of challenges more successfully. But as you mentioned, more is not always better. So, and being a sexually responsive partner doesn't mean that you're always sort of putting your partner's needs first and you're kind of meeting them unequivocally. Instead, when we talk about sexual responsiveness, we really mean being understanding and open to a partner's sexual interests, but still being able to assert your own interests and boundaries. So this is kind of a key part of, you know, positive sexual responsiveness When this type of responsiveness involves self-neglect, so one term for this is unmitigated sexual communion. So this implies that you're meeting your partner's needs without considering your own. This tends to be associated with lower sexual desire and lower satisfaction. So when people engage in this kind of sexual responsiveness without considering their own needs and interests, they often then end up engaging in sex sort of out of these feelings of obligation or kind of some external pressures And then they feel disconnected and apathetic during sex. So that might explain why then they would feel lower desire and satisfaction. And then in clinical samples, where we often find that sexual responsiveness can help couples navigate these challenges, when this sexual responsiveness is unmitigated, people tend to feel more sexual distress and even things like greater anxiety and depression. So being and having a sexually responsive partner, so someone who's understanding, willing to make sexual compromises, this tends to be linked to desire maintenance, um, having sex that you enjoy more, feeling better about your relationship. And this might be especially true when partners are navigating different interests or coping with sexual issues. But if being responsive to a partner's needs involves self-neglect, then sexual responsiveness no longer has these same benefits and instead it, it can be costly. Yeah, and I think putting together a few of the different topic areas that we've discussed, it sounds like we need intimacy and closeness, and we need to be willing to sacrifice to benefit our partner and meet their needs. But at the same time, we also need autonomy and independence and boundaries. And so it's having the right blend of all of those things. And it's a tall order, but it is achievable. But it's it's different from a lot of the models that we might see or think of for relationships. And this is why we need the science so that we can understand how to think about them and when we see optimal relationship functioning. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's what's so great about things like your podcast, right? Where we can get into some of the nuance because sometimes that's hard, right? In general, you know, we want to talk about the benefits of sexual responsiveness, but we also know there's important caveats and it's good to be able to, you know, get into some of those nuances because usually there's not like one simple straightforward (laughs) answer to understanding how to have a better sex life. You know, this is, these are things that, you know, take a lot of time and consideration and reflecting on your own needs, your partner's needs and being able to comfortably communicate about those. So yeah, I think, uh, I think there is a lot of important nuance here. Yeah. Now, one last question for you. You've published more than 150 papers and book chapters on the science of sex and relationships, which is a staggering amount of research. So we've really only skimmed the surface here in terms of covering the work that you've done. But looking at this broad catalog of research, I'm curious what stands out to you as some of the biggest takeaways or things that you've learned or maybe things that have surprised you 
over the course of studying this topic extensively for so many years. And I know there's a lot that you can choose from there. I can mention, you know, one of my personal favorites from your catalog of research is your finding about cuddling and spooning after sex and how that predicts later relationship satisfaction and sexual satisfaction. So what stands out to you? What are some of your favorite things that you found? Yeah, that's such a great question. I feel like my overarching sort of favorite thing, uh, or that I think kind of encompasses a lot of the findings, is this idea that valuing sort of like putting work and effort into your sexual relationship is important and I think underlies a lot of these things. So one way that we've looked at this is to look at different beliefs that people hold about how a sex life or sexual satisfaction is maintained in relationships. And, you know, one set of beliefs is these destiny beliefs, right? That your sex life is going to be wonderful. You just have to find the right partner. You'll sort of know these things right from the start. And another set of beliefs involves, um, you know, that sex takes work and effort, right? That, you know, challenges can be opportunities to learn, um, that relationships will sort of ebb and flow and grow and change over time. And I think like endorsing these sort of growth beliefs uh, we just consistently find that it underlies how willing people are to be responsive to their partner's needs, right? Even in the face of challenges, whereas destiny believers, um, and these are people, you know, who, you know, they, they believe in soulmates, right? Like they tend to, they're very relationship focused, but they think that relationships are kind of either destined to be or they're not. And when they encounter a sexual issue, they tend to be less responsive to their partner's needs, right? So they tend to sort of like, back away when times are tough. Whereas when we see, you know, growth believers, they do tend to lean into these things. So this could be being sexually responsive, being open to planning sex, uh, being open to considering that like, you know, sexual frequency will ebb and flow at different times in the relationship. So I think that's one thing that I, that I, when I talk to, you know, when I try to shift people's views about a sexual relationship, I think a key part is this idea that you know, often we have to put some work and effort and energy into these things. And you mentioned the cuddling work, right? Which in some ways could go along with that. And like what we found there, and again, this is like maybe a little bit counterintuitive into what people think is that the amount of time that people spent, you know, being affectionate, cuddling, saying affectionate words after sex was linked to their sexual satisfaction relationship satisfaction. And this was like a stronger predictor than like how long they spent on foreplay, right? And we see a lot more about like the importance of foreplay. So this idea that like this connection that we're building with our partner is like an important way, not only that we can actually feel more sexually satisfied, but that how we feel in our sexual relationship extends to these like broader evaluations of our relationship, right? Yeah. So we need to look at the foreplay and the afterplay if we really want to understand this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's right. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Amy. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work or follow your research lab online? Sure. Yeah. All of the papers I discussed uh, today will be on my website. So amymuse.com. Um, and you can see all of my lab members and some of the work that we're doing there. Uh, we also have a share lab Instagram account uh, where we post a lot of like shorter summaries about some of the work that we're doing in the lab. So People can follow us there and sort of learn about the new work that we have coming out. Well, thank you again for your time. And I'll be sure to include links to all of that in the show notes. I really appreciate having you here. It's always great to see you, Amy. Always great to see you too. Thanks, Justin. Thank you for listening. 
keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter and TikTok at Justin Lee Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Lee Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. And if you have a question you'd like me to answer on a future episode of this show, you can leave me a podcast voicemail at speakpipe.com slash sex and psychology. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. 